Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome to the finale of SCP Archives Serapis. As a quick reminder, the best place to start for this season is at Serapis Part 1, and then catch up to us here. But you can listen to the episodes in any order if you'd like. Second, uh, if you caught last week's episode, you probably know that this is the last episode that we'll have Tom Rory Parsons for. Tom is our incredible composer. He has worked on, uh, he counted up, I believe it's 136 episodes, which is actually significantly more episodes than I myself have worked on. Tom has been an incredible part of our team, and uh, we're going to miss having him on SCP, but Tom and I have some very exciting new projects coming out later this year. To give Tom a proper send-off, we are currently collecting questions for a little Q&A, so if you'd like to ask Tom about how he makes his music, or what magical potions he drank to get so good at music, the best way to do that is either by finding us on Twitter at twitter.com slash scp underscore pod, finding us on Tumblr at tumblr.com slash scp dash pod, or Instagram at scp underscore pod um, or by leaving your questions on our discord however you can get them to us please get them to us i'll be collecting questions until thursday uh, and then we'll ideally be posting the q a um, friday or this weekend Um, so stay tuned for that uh, and let us know what questions you have for tom and last but certainly not least this of course does mark the end of season four Now, we will be back with Season 5 in just two very short weeks, uh, so you can expect that very, very soon. Um, May 17th is the current launch date. Uh, I'll keep you guys updated if that changes at all. I don't think it will. But uh, we'll be back to our usual anthology stuff. Um, New episodes every single week, as you're accustomed to. Lots of really cool ones. Uh, Travis and Matt are going to be our editor and composers for that season, uh, and they're incredible, and I th- and I think you'll really like them. But uh, that's it for now. So, without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. Warning. The Foundation database is classified. Unauthorized access will result in detainment. Within this archive, you'll find the procedures, descriptions, and accounts of the most notorious anomalies we've encountered to date. Secure. Contain. Protect. This is Agent Hector Gallio. The following information is classified level 5 under Project Serapis. O5 eyes only. The hypothesis that SCP is the same as the entity known as Mokash, a powerful being masquerading as a Slavic nature deity, has yielded more than historical context. It's now known that research into Mokash and its anomalous qualities was conducted by Professor J.A. Stockley, a Foundation Allied academic in the 1920s. This fact has provided the link between the Foundation and SCP-6889 and allowed me to close in on the secret the Foundation has been hiding about the entity and the region of Shibbet's Vale where it sleeps. The evidence gathered by Stockley concerning Shibbet's Vale was in the Foundation's own archives all along. Previously, it had been impossible to find without Stockley's name and an approximate date to work with. 
but furnished with this information, I located a box file that had been kept in long-term archival storage at site for a hundred years. Stockley was employed by an early incarnation of the SCP Foundation to advise on psychological matters, and in this capacity was included in the task force sent to ship its veil in the spring of 1923. The deployment of this task force was prompted by the Foundation coming into possession of the evidence in the form of a film reel, which was recovered from among Stockley's archived evidence. This reel was shot on the then-newly-released Cinecodac hand-cranked 16mm camera. It was being used by Connor Herons, a naturalist attempting to get footage of the black bears which are native to the region. The film has no sound, but the image is clear, if grainy, and responds well to being digitally enhanced. Stockley's notes on the film also remain. The film begins with a shot of a coniferous forest, slowly moving through the trees towards a source of light and movement ahead. The camera reaches a view of a clearing and stops, with foliage near the lens, suggesting the user of the camera is attempting to remain out of sight. In the clearing are eight people, three men and five women wearing simple white clothing. They are barefoot, Two of them carry lit torches. I'm reminded of certain rites performed by adherents of pre-Christian religions in parts of Scandinavia, Germany, and Russia, which, though they have been revived imperfectly from incomplete historical evidence, still retain some genuine elements of past worship. Suspended in a harness of ropes tied to the branches of the surrounding trees is a naked man, hung upside down. Two of the participants dig a hole underneath the hanging man with spades, during which the man's struggles show that he is alive. This part of the proceedings is unfamiliar to me, though the concept of feeding the earth, such as with sacrifices of grain or a portion of the produce, is itself not uncommon. One of the men draws a knife with a long, thin blade. He cuts a series of lines into the man's chest. Though the hanging man's thrashing threatens to loosen the ropes around him, other observers step forward to hold him still. The symbol, when completed, resembles four squares in a diamond formation. One of the women then draws another symbol in each of the squares in the man's blood. This symbol is that of the Slavic forest goddess Mokosh, evidenced from the remains of the temples in the Baltic region where Mokosh and the rest of her pantheon were primarily worshipped. The secondary symbols render it more complex than the more common versions of a symbol, but are themselves common on the carved wooden posts used to mark the sacred boundaries of the pantheon's temples. Together, they form a constellation of meaning, encompassing nature, birth, fertility, motherhood, protection, and the passage between the plane of the living and the plane of the dead. The man with the knife then cuts the throat of the hanging man. Blood sprays from the wound into the hole dug beneath him. 
from the earth grow at supernatural speed, winding in thorny vines that wrap around the man until only his hands and feet are still visible. Bunches of white fruit, about the size and shape of pears, appear among the vines, and the eight participants each pick one. They begin to eat these fruit, as the view is obscured by out-of-focus foliage. The holder of the camera moves away from the clearing and walks more briskly through the trees, away from the clearing, until the film ends with a view of a dense, coniferous forest. Heron's film came to the attention of the Foundation through the Scarslow Police Department. The dead man was identified as Walter Weldon, a worker in the town's textile mill who had gone missing four days prior to his death. None of the ritualists could be identified from the film. Stockley combined his own research into Mokosh with the investigation into Weldon's death and generated a hypothesis that a cult dedicated to Mokosh was operating in Shibbet's Vale. This was prior to the Foundation's use of dedicated mobile task forces. So a mission was assembled with a Foundation agent in charge and Professor Stockley consulting. The troops were drawn from the 170th Infantry Regiment of the United States Army, led by Captain Van Hassel. Most of these men were veterans of what was then known as the Great War, and had seen action at the Battle of the Marne. Along with a company of troops, the force had a pair of tractor-toed six-inch howitzers. The mission records, together with Stockley's after-action report, give a thorough understanding of events. The force arrived via truck at Shibbets Vale at 1 a.m. March 3rd, 1923. After setting up the howitzers, the force was mustered ready to advance into the forest at dawn. We move at 0600 hours. We have the best chance of catching them unawares with enough light to fight back. If I may, Captain Van Hassel, it may be advantageous for the men to don their respective gear before then. You're expecting to use the guns, Agent? I don't expect anything, Captain. But I am used to the strangest outcomes and in being prepared for them. Anything to add, Professor? I don't believe I've had the pleasure. You will be our foundation friend, is that correct? The name's Agent Johnson. Of course it is. Well, Agent, in my experience, members of esoteric religious movements tend towards the delusional and paranoid. They typically believe they are uniquely knowledgeable about the world and that they are under threat from some malevolent forces. I dare say they're right about the second part. Be that as it may, they may not be forewarned about our presence, but they will still be expecting enemies to assail them. They might even believe we are a form of supernatural foe. In short, they will fight us to the death. Rather extreme an assessment, considering we're on U.S. soil. My men are not used to firing an anger on their fellow countrymen. Were you witness to the aftermath of the mass suicide at Devil's Hook? A force of armed policemen marched on 50 devotees of the Red King. They burned their compound and ran among the police on fire, setting them ablaze in turn. Or the 12 souls who polluted the waters of Derisford with their own bodies and poisoned 200 men, women, and children, should I go on, 
You don't know the kind of enemy we're facing, Captain. We do. They will die before they surrender, and they'll always try to take you with them. You know the Farewell. Foundation's objectives. But rules of engagement will apply. Stockley, you'll be with me behind the action. I need you on the spot, but not in the front line. Agent, I understand this is your show, but these men are under my command. You know the Foundation's objectives. As long as you pursue them, do it your way. Good. But if it goes south, I reserve the right to make a decision. That includes using the big guns and the gas shells, if need be. Not while we have men who can fight, Agent. If people have to die, so be it. But I will not be a party to that barbarism. That is the Foundation's call alone. We know what is at risk if your men cannot get it done. The Germans used gas on us at Shimon de Dem. Not everyone got their gas masks on in time. It burned them. Burned their eyes. Blinded them. Their lungs blistered up. Agent, you cannot understand what that means until you see it. Hear it. If your men do their jobs, Captain, I won't have to. After approximately 20 minutes of moving through the heavily wooded ground, a squad led by Staff Sergeant Thorpe made contact with the enemy. Professor Stockley was some way behind the advance, but witnessed the initial contact at a distance. U.S. Army, come out in the open. Keep your hands where I can see them. Do it. There is no war here, soldier. Natural gas leak. We're getting everyone out of the area. Leave your possessions and come with us. No gas lines, either. I said come out in the open. Everyone. How many are you? More than you. Hey, Sarge. What's with this guy's face? Can it, Wash? No, no, his skin looks like it's coming off in handfuls. These must be our guys. I am no danger to you. But leave our land or that will change. The army doesn't take real well to threats. Last warning. Okay, Washburton. Ames, cuff this bozo. The rest of you fan out and bring the rest to gunpoint. I get all the dirty jobs. Follow orders or I'll cook up a few more. Get to it. Hey, you. We're gonna slap these on you. And if you struggle, it ain't gonna end well. Is that a knife? Guy's got a knife. Sarge, what do we... Wash! Wash! Brothers and sisters! The ground gives back! The garden sustains us! It's the trees! Get away from the trees! It was far away. But I heard his words clearly. Get away from the trees, he said. They were in the middle of the forest. How were they supposed to do that? Washburton, as I understand, was the first man to die. The rest of his squad, the survivors, saw it happen more clearly than I could. Some said it was a tree root, others a branch. Either way, it tore right through him. It ripped him wide open. Thorpe, to his credit, didn't just 
run. He tried to retreat his squad in a decent order as the trees picked up more of his men and pulled them apart or dashed them against the ground. I saw the bone tree between the trees. Their skin was ivory white and they were misshapen. There was a a lack of the essential symmetry of the human form. They were humanoid in shape. Arms and legs and a head, but with a distortion that rendered them utterly inhuman. The one who spoke had black eyes and a mouth that took up most of his face. I saw it for just a second through the field glasses, but I cannot forget it. Lined with teeth like a shark's, the eyes wide, raw pits lined with ragged skin as if they were just holes drilled into the front of a skull. There were others in the trees. Some, skinny as ghosts. One was huge and lumbering like a pale, two-legged cow. It was dark beneath the bows, with the dawn only just breaking. And I thought I saw men with three arms, men with no legs and the lower body of a snake dragging themselves through the mulch, men up in the trees with bows and spears. I do not know what was real, except that men were dying in front of me. I did not fight in the Great War. I was too old, and besides, the Foundation saw to my remaining in England to do my work on their behalf. I had read of awful things, of course. I had seen the aftermath of a few, and and they stayed with me. But this was the first time I saw it unfold in front of me. Red, bleeding chunks hanging from the branches that used to be men. One soldier leaning on another because he had lost a leg to the tree roots ripping out of the ground... Three or four of the pallid forest men leaping on a soldier and the spray of red against their white skin. Ah. Captain Van Hassel was nearby. One of his men had laid a field telephone cable behind us, and he used it now. I heard him relaying the situation to Agent Johnson. I cannot recall the exact words... He said the enemy was ready for them in force, and and they had what he called an environmental advantage. Words to the effect he was trying to fall back in in, in order to regroup, I suppose. Gunfire was everywhere. Bullets passed my head. Bits of shattered bark pattered against the protective smock that I wore over my clothes. The captain yelled for the guns, and the absurd thought occurred to me that I had been so wrong about war and battle until that moment. I had thoughts of regiments of men moving in disciplined squares and generals surveying the battlefield as if with the eye of a god. Now I understood what any fool should have known all along. That battle was chaos. Utter, cruel, and random bedlam. And there's no more plan or discipline there than in the throes of insanity. Our 
position is 87 to 89. Target to our front. Captain, should we fall back? Stay put, Professor, by me. Agent, target to our front. Fire! Did it work? Did it get them? I can't see through the smoke. That's not smoke. That bastard used the gas! Masks! Masks, everyone! We put them on when we set out, Captain. Some fool always takes us off. Captain! Good God, Thorpe, you're alive! Shells came down right on top of him, sir. I can't see a damn thing now, but the gas is rolling right over the enemy. Then advance! Forward! Advance, keep order! Stockley, stay by me! Well, stay back, Stockley. This one's still alive. My God. Oh, just like Shimon did there. What do we do, sir? Prisoners? I don't know. He was coming right at me, sir. Yes, Sergeant. Of course. Very good. Trees change up ahead, sir. They're like, God, I don't know what. Take the right, Thorpe. Sergeant Morse, on the left. Stay in sight. In good order. The ground was littered with the people of the forest. I have no other name for them but that. Followers of Mokosh, perhaps. The gas was lewisite, I learned later, a replacement in the armories for mustard gas. But the effects were just as awful. They writhed in the yellowish haze, their eyes streaming, vomiting and drooling as they hacked up the fluids filling their lungs. It burned on the inside and on the outside. We had full protective clothing and masks and they were practically naked in comparison. I saw the deformities up close then. Their skin was like wet, white clay. Their bodies and limbs were lumpen and asymmetrical. Some had three arms or one arm just withered away. I saw one with a single black eye in the middle of his forehead and no nose, but a lipless slash of a mouth. Some had bundles of fat, white growths, like clusters of a strange, pale bubose, blistered up from their flesh, and they looked for all the world like clusters of, of fruit just growing from their bodies. I have never seen the like of those people. And even in my work for the Foundation, I have heard of nothing so appalling to any soul who celebrates the natural or the pure. And the soldiers shot them dead as they fought to breathe. And God forgive me, I can find no condemnation in my heart for their actions. The trees were like enormous fungal growths. The ground underfoot was spongy and in rubbery masses like the caps of huge mushrooms. White particles, spores perhaps, they fell in drifts from the altered flora, mixing with the awful fog of the gas. 
the remains of wooden buildings were scattered around here, with a few partially made of stone. Most were collapsed or had been broken through by the enormous fungi. Overhead were bundles of fruit, like clusters of white, vastly oversized grapes, and, and I realized with a lurch that the groats on the followers might be fruit after all. But that was not all that the Garden of Mokosh had to show us. Hey, Pacific here with a quick ad break and a reminder. Ad-free and bonus episodes are available at our Patreon at patreon.com slash scp underscore pod. You guys, you know it's been nicer lately, and in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is going to be in, but it's been nice for like four days in a row, and I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up, and so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto. Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always gonna have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want, it's effortless guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And now, back to the show. Captain, are you seeing the same thing I am? I wish I wasn't. Are they captives? Have to get up close to tell. Professor. Have you seen anything like this? I'll take a look. Um, watch out for the... Well, just... Just watch out. Hold here. Keep him covered. I can't make out so much through this damned mask. I don't think it's a captive. It looks like one of their own. The tree has grown up right through his body, going in through the thigh and out the shoulder... Branches through the torso. Let's see. The stomach is distended. I'm not a doctor, but there's something inside that shouldn't be. Good God, it's moving. I can see it through the skin. What is it? I don't know. It's it's like an eel. It has a spine. I see a brain, vestigial limbs caught in heaven. Must be 20 of the poor bastards. 30. The crowds had flamethrowers in the war. We could do, we could do with a couple now. Captain, what do we do with them? We'll decide later once we've secured this place. We don't even know how far it goes. That's Morse's squad. Get back, Professor. Thorpe, find out what the hell is going on. You! You! With me! The rest of you hold here! Did some of them survive the gas? I hope so. Otherwise, it's something else. That sounds like something else. See that? Tripping through the trees? Man! To our front left! Open fire! Shoot it down! Shoot it down! 
It's still coming. Fall back! Fall back! Thor! Morse! Fall back and regroup! You bring poison to my garden! My people! My children! The moment the mist rolled back and I saw her properly, I knew it was her. From above us, among the boughs of the trees, it was difficult to judge her height. But I believe she was not much less than twice the height of a man. She was naked, save for the flowering vines wrapped around her body. Her flesh was pale green, with dark veins running through it. The dawning sun made a halo around her as it shone through the cloud of spores and gas trailing behind her. The plants around her flowered, wilted, and budded anew as I watched. Petals and leaves fell from her, and those fat white fruit dropped from the vines. The sound that came with her was something like music, something like the awful droning of a swarm of insects or the ringing of one's ears. I knew it was Mokosh. In ages past, her worshippers had depicted her crowned with flowers, sometimes with a ball of thread or a spinning wheel in her hands, or even a bird on each shoulder. Her images could have both female and male characteristics. She could be old or young, or have a swollen belly of an expected mother. But in spite of all this variation, I knew I was looking at her then. The being I had studied and came to fear might be a flesh-and-blood entity rather than a myth long since destroyed by the spread of Christianity. She looked down at us from on high, and I swear to God, she saw right through the dread of my heart. Captain Van Hassel, I forgive you. I see so much pain in you. You are afraid. It suffuses you. There is no room for anything else. But I am a compassionate God. I will banish your fear. All you have to do, Captain Van Hassel, is breathe. Captain. Captain, what are you doing? Keep your mask on, Captain. It's the spores. She wants you to breathe in the spores. Do you see? Now there is no room for fear. Prof, where's the field telephone? Captain? Captain, can you... He's gone. The field telephone, where is it? Yeah, he left it by me. Agent! No, this is Sergeant Thorpe. The captain's down. We need a salvo on this position. Oh my gosh, he's getting up. His face is... His face is gone. There will be no more fear. Breathe deep. You are all my children now. Rid B-8. No, now. Right now. Not the gas. Blow it all to hell. They're all getting up. All the dead ones. Fall back. Everyone fall back. The captain's down. Everyone retreat. last I saw of that battlefield was Captain Van Hassel on his feet again. His face had imploded. 
leaving just a huge, dark hole. The flesh inside was bubbling up and sprouting into wriggled red vines. He stumbled towards me with his gun still in hand. Sergeant Thorpe grabbed me by the arm and dragged me after him as he ran. The rest of the men still alive and sensible followed as the shells fell overhead. The thunder of those guns deafened me in an instant. I know now why so many men came back from the war utterly shell-shocked. It is more than a noise. It is a wall of force hammering against one's soul. I could not even think, just plunge heedlessly forward without even knowing where I was headed. It was providence alone that kept me heading away from that cauldron of fire and not shambling blindly back into it. I recall little of our return to the location of the guns, where Agent Johnson was already limbering the guns, ready to depart Shibbet's Vale. Of the eighty men who went into the forest, a little more than fifty returned. And I have no doubt several of those lost souls were caught in the barrage that fell on the very place we had been standing a few moments before. And though the thought sickens me, in Sergeant Thorpe's place, I could not have countenanced any other decision. We were silent in the trucks that carried us back through Scarslow. We did not look back. We left many men in that forest, and not a little part of ourselves. I have sought knowledge all my life, but that day I learned what war truly was. And on that subject, I would give anything to remain in ignorance. The Foundation had yet to fully develop its modern-day creed of secure, contain, and protect. Destruction was an acceptable outcome for an anomaly on the scale Stockley witnessed. Nevertheless, the after-action reports included the archives showing that Agent Johnson, then referred to by his real name of Senior Field Agent David Carlson, was severely disciplined upon returning to his home site. Deploying Lewisite on an unsecured location was considered an overstepping of his authority. He was transferred out of field work and into site security. Information security was also laxer in that earlier incarnation of the Foundation. There's no record of amnestics or other measures being employed to keep the U.S. Army soldiers from communicating what they had witnessed at Shibbets Vale. Professor Stockley was evidently left free to write of his experiences. Compared to the current level of procedural oversight, there was a definite lack of... Come in! Good evening, Agent Galio. Working late? Almost finished. I take it you're representing the O5 Council today? You are correct. Unfortunately for you, I am from the faction that approves of your research project here. I understand you've chased the trail back to an old operation in the 1920s. You keep a close watch on me. <laughs> Did you expect anything less? 
We were hoping you could share your conclusions. There's not much to sift through here. I'll have it for you soon. How about a sneak preview? Hmm? The Council is not renowned for its patience. This is it. The reason for Project Serapis. This is what half the O5 Council is scared of. Mokash was already under Shibbet's Vale. It had been there since the 12th century, but the 1923 operation is what the Council members are covering up. So, what is your smoking gun, Agent? Agent Johnson, or Carlson, whatever we call him. He sent a salvo of artillery shells onto the target and then got out of there. He'd committed a pretty serious breach of protocol and using poison gas. He must have been worried of causing any more havoc there than he already had. That's when he made his mistake. Which was? He didn't confirm the kill. Mokash had survived the Northern Crusades and made it across the Bering Straits. It had survived for the best part of seven centuries. One artillery salvo wasn't enough to make sure it was dead. But Johnson didn't turn back, didn't get eyes on the body. So it sunk into the ground again and healed up, getting stronger and stronger until today's foundation kicked in its front door. Quite the cover-up for a single agent's mistake. Agents get it wrong every day. What is special about Johnson's screw-up? Nothing. It's about Johnson himself. After Shibbet's Vale, he was transferred to site security. That's not much of a glamour posting, but it's long-term and safe. But there's no record of him being promoted or transferred. Nothing on him dying or being compromised. I think his history was scrubbed. The mission details were all that remained. Which means? Johnson's 05. Maybe he's died off since. Maybe he's still alive. Either way, a member of the O5 Council is responsible for a monumental follow-up that left an active anomaly to recuperate and corrupt the area like it had always been. Whoever knew about it would have a hell of a bargaining chip in politics within the Council. I don't know much about the members, but I do know they don't like being vulnerable. Whoever Johnson became, whoever counts him as a part of their legacy... They want the Shibbetsvale mission kept hidden. Hmm. I see. That does give us a great deal to think about, Agent. Certain elements of council politicking make a great deal more sense in the light of your theory. I thought that might be the case. Like I said, I'm almost finished here. I just need to put the rubber stamp on it and call Project Serapis complete. As much as I hate to fill your inbox, there's another reason the Council sent me. This was just recovered from the site of the mission at Lake Apasawa. Iota 28's operation? That's what started all this off. Did the cleanup crew bring it in? <laughs> no cleanup crew. Not until a containment procedure for SCP can be developed. We suspect this was left there deliberately. For our attention. And now, for yours. One final entry in Project Serapis. I hope it won't make this too late a night for you. I didn't stick with the Foundation for the regular hours. I'll go through it and get it logged. 
then I am done here for the time being. The O5 Council thanks you for your exemplary research work, Agent Galio. Some of them, at least. Good to know. We'll be seeing you. The item recovered from Lake Apasawa is a video cassette tape of a design common in the early to mid-1980s. It was found on the lake shore, close to the poor concrete plug blocking the entrance to the cave complex used by MTF Iota 28. The plug was placed there after contact with Iota 28 was lost, with the intention of keeping any anomalies inside from reaching the surface. If the tape originated from inside the cave, this containment measure was ineffective. The tape shows the image of a cave with a ceiling that's estimated four to five meters high. The cave is full of vegetation resembling oversized mushrooms and small fruiting trees, which are not consistent with naturally occurring underground biomes. The image pans across to show a lone figure walking into the cave, carrying a flare which is the scene's only light source. Analysis confirms this figure to be Iota 28 Abbott, the last member of MTF Iota 28 known to be alive. The light falls on an enormous worm-like creature in the cave, three meters high and at least 40 to 50 long, with a segment of body of dark brown chitin and eight or more eyes arranged around the circle of its mouth. Matching the audio with Iota 28 Abbott's last transmission confirms this creature is SCP. It's, oh my God, it's a worm. It's the size of the goddamn Red October. It has so many eyes. So many eyes. Its mouth is opening. The worm-like entity opens its mouth, revealing a ring of teeth around a central passageway in which can be glimpsed a group of humanoid figures. They are poorly lit by the flare, but as they walk out of the worm's interior, they become distinct. The central figure is approximately three and a half meters tall and resembles a human woman. It has pale green skin with darker colored veins and long fern-like leaves in place of hair. Flowering vines are wound around its otherwise unclothed body. This entity is consistent with Professor Stockley's description of the being called Makash. This entity has been given the provisional designation SCP-2. Who the hell are you? The rest of the figures emerge from the worm. Four of them appear to be preteen human females and are wearing sweatpants and t-shirts that read Camp Episawa. They match the description of Sally Absinall, Roberta Little, Pearl Kraus, and Margaret Pendlemore, the four girls who went missing from Camp Episawa in 1974. If these are the same girls, they have not aged since the time of their disappearance. They have been given the provisional designations of SCP. Dash three through six. Another figure resembling the corpse of a human female, moving via animated growths, resembling the roots of trees emerging from its torso. It has a slender build and appears to be in its late teens. It has long blonde hair and wears the remains of a white dress, tattered and bloodstains. This figure is identical to the last appearance of Polly Posniak, from the events filmed at the Children of New Eden compound in 1968. This entity has been given the designation SCP-7. 
The final figure appears to be a human female wearing breeches and a checked shirt. It has short red-brown hair and appears to be in its 20s. Though the age is difficult to determine because the face and upper chest are covered in blood. Though no photographs or physical description exist of Faye Weaver, the clothing and evidence of violence match the events described in the journals of Professor Milton Douglas Fitzwilliams in 1933. This entity is designated SCP-8. The camera moves, further suggesting it's a video camcorder. It is placed on a rock to give a better view of I-28 Abbott, who appears transfixed by the entity in front of him. The person carrying the camera now walks into frame. It appears to be a human female with long brown hair, wearing a plaid skirt and cardigan. Noticing primarily from behind, this figure closely matches photographs and film of Rebecca Valenti at the time of her disappearance in 1986. This entity has been designated SCP-9. As with SCPs-3 through 8, none of the other entities appear to have aged or changed at all since the time of their disappearance. SCP-3 speaks. I am seeing you banished from one land and tried to murder in this one. You killed those who followed me and drove me out. And beneath the ground I slept to recover. You dropped fire on me. But I wove this cocoon to give me shelter and healed once more. Now you come to kill me again. And this time, I was ready. Wait. Wait. We didn't know what was down here. All the stuff that's happened up there in Shibit's Vale. We had to find out what was causing it. All the deaths and disappearances. All the crazy shit. We had to find out why. You can't blame us for coming down here. Our people died too. And what do I care about your people? I am not one of them. I am far older, from very far away. You to me are as insects are to you. Until I bring them to my bosom and make them my children. It is my children who have suffered the most of all. You have exterminated them again and again. But they always come back. My daughters, my handmaidens. In me, they found a mother and a god. Okay, okay. We treated you bad. I get that. But it doesn't have to go on. The people I work for, the Foundation, they just want to be safe. We can both be safe. Yours and mine. But I do not want you to be safe. Then what do you want? What else could I desire? For my fellow gods who fell. For my children who are butchered. For my world denied my embrace. I want revenge. I-28 Abbott is torn apart from the inside by rapidly expanding plant growths. A tree festooned with torn flesh erupts from his body and white fruit blossoms on its branches. The image declines rapidly in quality and the tape ends. 
This concludes the research and analysis of information on anomalous evidence in Shibbets Vale gathered under Project Serapis. This information is classified level 5 for O5 eyes only. Project Serapis is now sealed. Agent Hector Gallio, signing off. This week's episode is possible thanks to our patrons. Joining us this week was Michelle Werner, Stephanie Ackers, Rissa M, Michael Lazaropoulos, Trekkie Cuz, Renner, W.D. Cipher, Iwin Pasteur, Joseph Connolly, S.K., Dr. Fairchild, and Devontia Bogle. Thanks, guys. Your support means the world, and it helps us do what we do. Project Serapis was written by Ben Counter. Gallio was John Grills. Stockley was Sushanted Laka. Van Hassel was Alvin Bowling II. Johnson was Damon Alums. Thorpe was Russell Moore. Bone Tree Warrior was Graham Rowitz. Washburton was Pacific S. Obadiah. O5 Rep was Addison Peacock. Abbott was David Dark. And Mokash was Alyssa Park. Our line editor was Daisy McNamara. Our sound designer was Dana Creaseman. And all of our music was done by the incredible Tom Rory Parsons. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit scparchives.com.